And it's my pleasure today to introduce to you one of my favorite speakers. And uh, we're going to back in Revelation, so open up your Bibles to the book of Revelation. And let's welcome Pastor Brian to come and share with us this morning. Give it up, Brian. Magenta, huh? Hmm. Looked pink to me. There goes all the guys' sign-ups. Guys, sign up anyways. We are continuing our uh, series on Route 66, The Road to the End. Um, it's our, revelations, our Revelation series. This is part six of eight. And I get to cover, uh, cover wrath, the other side of grace. So welcome to Happy Message Weekend. I love the sign. Danger, falling hail, fire, and brimstone ahead. Oh, joy. Did you hear that, uh, that uh, C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, is coming out as a movie? Hey guys, anybody, anybody read that when you were a kid or recently? Yeah, it's awesome, awesome story. And um, I actually went to the Narnia.com website and watched it. And if it looks, and if it's as good as it looks on the website, it's going to be an awesome, awesome movie. And uh, the book is pretty cool. And um, it's called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And there's four main characters in it, and they're children. It's Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. And in this book, they pass through this magic wardrobe into the land of Narnia, only to learn that it's under siege by the White Witch, who's turning uh, all the people to stone. And while exploring, exploring Narnia, they learn that the king uh, of Narnia is out and about, but not really ruling but uh, rumor has it he's on the move and he's planning to rescue the land and all its inhabitants from this white witch. And I want to uh, read just a short portion of this book where these children run into Mr. and Mrs. Beaver and they have a little conversation of uh, who King Aslan is and what, is, what he is like. And uh, this is the little conversation the kids have with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. Lucy asked, is, is he a man? Aslan a man, Mr. Beaver certainly said. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who the king of beasts is? Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion, I tell you. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Well, that you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what, Miss, what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. One of the most important things... Can you tell I have a couple toddlers I like to read to? You know? <laughs> Mostly they just giggle at me, but anyways. Um, one of the most important things that, that we can ever know about God is that he loves us. He loves us. In Jeremiah 31.3, God says, I have, I have loved you with an everlasting love. In John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God loves us. If you've uh, been catching over the summer this series on Revelations, my hope is that you've had a little revelation of your own. My hope is that you've learned that this loving, gracious, and merciful God 
of the Bible is not safe. He's not safe. But he's good, and he's the king, I tell you. So this is what we're going to do this morning. First, we're going to read through and kind of hit some highlights on chapters 14 through 16 in Revelations. And then I'm going to try to answer this lighthearted question. How can a God of love, mercy, and grace pour out wrath? How can he do that to people? Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, I just invite your Holy Spirit to fill this place. I pray that you bind the enemy, Lord, because there is warfare going on. Ephesians 6 tells us that. And I thank you that you've won, Jesus. And I just pray against the enemy in the name of Jesus. I pray that uh, you would open our ears so that we could hear, open our eyes so that we could see, Lord. And I pray this morning that uh, each of us would leave blessed with an understanding that you are as perfect in your wrath as you are in your mercy and in your love. I ask that in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, we're going to jump into Revelations verse 14, or uh, chapter, chapter 14, verse 6. And um, at this point, uh, God has commissioned three angels with three different messages. And uh, I'm going to begin again on verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. The second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. I just want to stop there for a moment. The war in Iraq has brought a lot of attention um, onto uh, the history of the Babylonian Empire. In fact, the city of Babylon was located in Iraq. And one of the viewpoints that theologians have is that Babylon the Great is literally Babylon, the city, rebuilt in Iraq. Another viewpoint that you can find in Scripture is that uh, Babylon the Great is actually the city of Rome, kind of restored to her full glory, and she's dominating the world with her economy and political influence. And I think, you know, I can see their stance on that. I understand where they pull that from Scripture. But here's where I kind of stand on this. And again, this is just more my opinion, but I think there's some strong scriptural support for this. I believe that Babylon is a system. It's a system. Or it's a pattern. In fact, it's the pattern of this world that the enemy uses to keep people from knowing the truth and to turn away from God. In fact, uh, Paul said this in Romans 12:2. He said, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. See, God, it seems that God isn't really concerned about a city. He's concerned about a system. He doesn't want us to follow this system that takes our eyes off Jesus. So what do we know for sure when these angels fly by? Well, we know that Babylon, Babylon and all that it represents will fail. It will fail and it will collapse and it will shock the entire world. All that they've put their trust in, all that they put their hope in has collapsed. It's failed. That's what we know for sure. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. Okay, so this is what has happened at this point. Angel number one flies by with the good news, okay? This angel is telling everybody left on the planet 
who Jesus Christ is. Nobody on the planet will have not heard of who God is and who Jesus is and the plan of salvation. And just as a side note, angels tend to get your attention. Have you ever noticed that in Scripture? Half the people that stood before an angel either wanted to worship them or wet themselves. Okay, well, maybe, maybe in the Greek they wet themselves, I don't know. But they, it's, it's scary. I mean, this is not the UPS guy showing up with a message saying, hey, what, Brown can do, you know, what can Brown do for you? you know, this, is, this is an angel, a powerful angel of God coming with a powerful message, getting the world's attention. So first he comes by, the next one comes by and has a really simple message. Bye-bye, Babylon. That system that you trust in, that thing you put your hope in, it's ended, it's gone. It's over. It's gone. The third angel comes by and proclaims the bad news. If you have given yourself fully over to that system, if you've given yourself fully over to the beast or his teaching, there's nothing we can do for you. God's wrath will fall on you. So these angels come by and they say that. And then again in chapter 14, after these angels come, Jesus arrives on the scene And he's not coming as Jesus the priest, ready to die on the cross. He is crowned king and ready to judge. And at this point in chapter 14, he separates those who have chosen God and those who reject God. And we know this is consistent with with Jesus. In John 5.22, he said this, The Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. So here Jesus shows up. This loving, merciful God shows up, ready to judge the earth. And in fact, it talks about him harvesting his followers. So Jesus comes and he removes his followers in chapter 14. He he takes all of his remaining followers off the earth. And then he commissions an angel to come and deal with those who have chosen evil. And this is what verse 19 says. The angel swung his sickle on the earth gathered its grapes and threw them into a great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and the blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as horses' bridles for a distance of 1,600 stradia. It's not too hard in this passage to understand what happens to God's enemies at this point. They are completely and entirely overthrown. They're destroyed, and they're harvested by an angel that squishes them into an ocean of blood that's 400 square miles the height of a horse. You know, that's how deep it is. This is very, a, a very vivid picture of God's wrath. And this is what I want you to get out of this piece. There's a big difference. In fact, there's a huge difference between those who are harvested by Jesus and those who are harvested by the grape-squishing angel. Okay? Big difference. Let's read on. <laughs> kind of a bummer, huh? Um... Chapter 15, verse 1, again, John is writing this. He said, I saw in heaven another great marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last, because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire and standing beside the sea, those who have been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name. They held harps given to them by God and sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. The song of Moses is found in Exodus 15, and it's the song that the people sang after God delivered them from Pharaoh and just the power of Egypt. 
After all those plagues, after all these things, God delivered them. And here, all the followers of God who Jesus has harvested are up in heaven and they're worshiping God and they're singing the song of Moses to God because they have been rescued from the beast, from the satanic system of this world. They've been rescued from that and they're worshiping God. Verse 6, Out of the temple came seven angels with seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chests. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. Jump down to Revelation chapter 16. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel came and poured out a bowl that created sores on all the people that were left. The second angel came and he poured a bowl out that turned the oceans into blood, killing all the sea life. The third angel came and uh, poured out this bowl of wrath, and and it turned all the fresh water into blood. Think you pay a lot for bottled water now? Man. Verse 5, Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, and listen to this, You are just in these judgments, you who are and were the Holy One, because you have so judged For they have shed the bloods of your saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. Wow. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. God is as perfect in his mercy as he is in his judgment, as he is in his wrath. We have to remember, the Bible says that only God knows the hearts of men. Only God. The fourth angel comes and creates scorching fire and intense heat, burning people. The fifth angel poured out his bowl. This is verse 10. The fifth angel came and poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. Men gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent what they had done. Isn't this interesting? They totally know who God is. Remember the angel came by, gave him the story, the good news? They know who God is, they understand what he's doing, and they're cursing God anyways. Finally, the sixth angel comes and pours his bowl out on the the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. So what's happening at this point is that the leaders of this world who are fully and wholeheartedly rejecting God want to fight. They want to fight. So what does God do? He, drives up, he dries up a great river and says, bring it on. Bring it on. Let's continue. Verse 13. Then I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are the spirits of demons performing miraculous signs. And they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. You know, in Jewish culture, frogs are just considered kind of heinous. They're vile. They're nasty. They're gross. And uh, if you think about it, the frog has its origin in the mud. It lives in mud, and it's a symbol of those who choose to live in sin's pollution. And that is how vile these spirits are. God is showing these evil spirits as frogs in order to make it clear to John that they represent everything that stands against God and His kingdom. And this is their last-ditch effort to rally all of their evil troops against God and those following Jesus. 
And then in verse 15, Jesus says something to them. He says this, Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him, so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. Now, if you're like me, when you first read that, you went, huh? (laughs) What? But listen to this. He's giving them a final warning. He's saying, I'm going to show up like a ninja. I am going to show up like a ninja, like a thief in the night. And if you are not clothed with me, if you are not covered with my Holy Spirit, it's all over for you. It's all over. Isn't it interesting? Even to the very end, God is giving them an opportunity to repent, to turn away from rejecting Him. Even to the very end. Verse 16, Then they, that is those three evil spirits, the frogs, gathered the kings together to the place, to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. A few things about Armageddon. Uh, it is a real place. It's in the northwest corner of Israel. Of Israel. It's also known as the Valley of Jezreel. Uh, the site is known for, for historic ancient battles. So we know it's a place. We know it's real. But what, what matters is this. Is there is going to be a place and a time where the final conflict between Satan and God takes place. Between the forces of good and evil. And you know what? We already know what happens. Verse 14, or chapter 14, the, uh, uh, the grape-squishing angel shows up and squishes them all, right? So we know what happens. It doesn't even, when you read it, you're waiting for this great epic battle, and God sends one angel. He sends one angel and cleans it up. Verse 17, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done! Then there came flashes of lightning, rumbling, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it had ever occurred since man had been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city, Jerusalem, split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her a cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away, and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones of about a hundred pounds each fell upon men, and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail, because the plague was so terrible. Wow. Those are heavy chapters. Heavy chapters. At the end of chapter 16, it is done, is said by Christ. He's saying that God's wrath is complete. His wrath against sin and evil and the rejection of God, it's over. The dominion of the beast ends. The pattern of this world is broken. Christ annihilates his enemies and we are free from all evil and can be in a perfect, perfect relationship with God. The triune relationship. There's a lot to chew on in these chapters. Just what means what? What does this mean to my life? And I think the question uh, that I'd like to answer is very important. It's how can a God of love, mercy, and grace pour out wrath? What does that look like? How does that work? How can this loving, merciful, good God go from love to wrath on people? How does that happen? Well, I've created a little tool that helps me understand this, and I call it Brian's Little Funnel of Wrath. 
And uh, the purpose, again, is just to show how wrath comes about. So when, when you know, you're talking to your kids driving home today, you can go, honey, we learned about Brian's funnel of wrath. What did you learn in Sunday school? Hopefully they're not covering the same thing, right? Um, so here we go. Um, there's four parts to this funnel, and the first part's pretty interesting. The first part is freedom. The first part of this funnel is freedom. Love requires freedom. Love requires freedom. I was looking up the definition of uh, love, and the first definition I got was a score of zero in tennis. Didn't think that'd be prudent. Um, <laughs> the second, I think I'm getting ADD from Kurt. I was, oh, look, a bird. Um, I'm losing it. Um, the second definition in Webster's is this. It's a deep, tender, indescribable feeling of affection and con- consideration of a person. We just look at someone and we go, oh, there's my wife. I love my wife. I see my boys. I just love my boys. I watch the Minnesota Vikings, and even when they lose, I go, I love the Vikings. <sighs> but by definition, by definition, you got these Seahawks fans, you have the same problem, so no, okay. <laughs> All right? By definition, love must be freely chosen. Love must be freely cho- chosen. Let me give you an example. We're able to, uh, we live in an era of, of, of computers right now. And I've got a, a computer in, in my office. And I've got uh, Office XP on it. And it has that little translation program in it where I could highlight a sentence. And I could bring my computer up here. And the sentence that I highlight, I press click and it reads to you. And it says, hello, welcome to East Point. I am so glad you're here. I love you. Let's hug. Okay, now if I did that, if I did that, John, would you want to come up here and go, man, that computer is so loving. Come here. I'll be careful. I'll be gentle with the monitor. You know, let me give you a hug. No, he wouldn't do that. He wouldn't do that. We don't consider computers loving. I programmed the computer to do that. Computers lack the capacity for love because they have no choice but to do what we program them to do or say. Humans would be in the same category as God if God merely programmed our actions. Listen to this. I really want you to get this. In order for us to be loving, when God created us, in order for us to be loving, He also had to make it possible for us to be unloving. In order for us to be loving, we must have the freedom not to be loving. And you can find evidence in this throughout Scripture. I'll read one verse to you. The, the leader of Israel in the Old Testament in this particular era was Joshua. And some of the people in Israel were, want, were wanting to follow God and some people weren't. And so here's a challenge he gave them. He said, if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my household, we're going to serve the Lord. We're going to serve the Lord. For us to choose God who is love, we have to have the freedom not to choose God. We have to. We have to have the freedom. The first part of this funnel is simple. Love requires freedom. Otherwise, God could just program all of us to sit around and sing Barney's I Love You song, you know. I love you. you. Anyway, I won't go through that. Um, <clears throat> I know you're worried, but... Uh, so as strange as this first part sounds, it actually does lead us down into the next part of the funnel of wrath. The next part of the funnel is risk. Risk. You see, freedom implies risk. Freedom implies risk. The freedom to choose or reject uh, love constitutes a risk for God. 
the risk of rejecting him. We can choose to reject God. We can make choices that oppose his will in our individual lives or even choices that can affect the lives of other people. Let me give you a few examples from Scripture. Let me think. How about right from the beginning? Adam and Eve, God has a chat with them and says, Hey, listen, I really don't want you to eat the fruit off that tree. And they go, Okay, that tree? Yeah, that tree. Right? That's what they do. I was reading the story of Cain and Abel. You know, and I thought, man, if I, I feel convicted sometimes when I'm speeding down the freeway. Although on I-90, your speeding is what, going 45 or something? But I, sometimes, I, and if the Lord appeared next to me and said, Brian, you know, it's, uh, sin is crouching at your door. You probably ought not to speed. I would probably not speed if the Lord Almighty appeared before me. So here, Cain is hanging out, getting all angry at his brother Abel, and God appears to give him counsel and says, hey, Cain, sin is crouching at your door probably not a real good idea to kill your brother. And what does Cain do? He goes, okay, thanks. (coughs) He chose to do evil. He chose to do, there was a risk for God. God gave him freedom. How about King David? My gosh, the man after God's own heart had a major horny issue, right? Constantly falling, constantly having problems. In fact, if you've read any of the, the Old Testament, Chronicles and Kings, I can summarize you the whole story of Israel. Okay, here it is. Pretend I'm the nation of Israel. We love you, God. We hate you, God. We love you, God. We hate you, God. For hundreds and hundreds of years. We love you, God. We hate you, God. We love you, God. We hate you, God. They do that for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Constantly going back and forth. How about Judas? Who had an opportunity to reign with Jesus forever, but chose 30 pieces of silver. Giving us freedom came with a huge risk. But God considered being in a love relationship with you and I totally and completely worth that risk. John, uh, several times in in the, the books he wrote, reminds us that God is love. And in 1 John, he wrote, We love because he first loved us. Some of us will respond to God's love and we will love God back and we will love others. And some of us will choose not to love. That's the risk. That's the risk God took. Third part of this funnel. First we have freedom, then we have risk, and now it spins down through consequences. Consequences. Risk leads to consequences. God makes it clear, especially in the book of Revelations, although there's lots of other places, both in the Old and New Testament, that he will hold us responsible for how we choose to use our freedom. He'll do it. He'll hold us responsible. Consider this. We don't hold computers responsible when they fail because their failure is ultimately due to how we program them. We don't go, oh, you didn't open that final. What's going on? That picture didn't come up. You're frozen. That's it. We don't talk to our computers like that. Mostly we just kick them and throw them in the trash. Because we are free to choose or reject God, we can be held accountable for how our choices affect ourselves and affect those around us. And as much as God loves us, He hates sin. Scripture makes that clear. Listen to just a few sins, uh, just a few sins that He hates. And keep in mind, this is the Lord, not me, saying this. He said, "I hate pride and arrogance. He hates these things. I hate evil behavior and I hate perverse speech. I hate robbery and injustice." I hate divorce, and I hate a man who covers himself with violence. I'm not even talking about the Ten Commandments or the do's and don'ts in Scripture. God is very serious about how he feels about sin. 
Now, God doesn't hate sin because he's some meanie up in heaven who just can't wait to throw a 100-pound hailstone on you. Okay? That's not God. That's not God. He hates sin because he is love and he is life. And sin has nothing to do with love. And sin has nothing to do with life. I think Romans uh, 6.23 best captures the consequence of sin both in our lives and in the life of our Creator. It says this, For the wages of sin is death. The thing we deserve is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Well, you're going, what, conse- what do you mean by God? What's God's consequence? Well, what consequence did God have to face because of our sin? Anyone? <laughs> he died on the cross. He died on the cross. And that just blows my mind. That blows my mind. He took the heat for us. In fact, listen to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians. He said, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Take his gift. Accept that gift. It's a good thing. Everything that ever separated us from God was nailed to the cross. He died for us so that we could be with him forever. God did something about the problem with sin. He did something about it. He gave us freedom to reject it or choose it. So what happens? We know what happens when we accept it. We get life. We live forever. We go with Him. But what happens when we reject it? There is a consequence, and it's called wrath, the very unsafe part of God's personality, and it's the final part of our funnel. The consequence of choosing evil, the consequence of rejecting God, leads to godly wrath. As we just read in in the three chapters in Revelations, the warfare between God and those who choose to use their freedom for evil is not eternal. It doesn't just keep going on and on and on and on. There is an end to it. There is an end to it. When the day of wrath comes, those who, who still oppose God will clearly know who He is. Remember the angel came by and told them the good news and even the people of the earth uh, cursed. It says they cursed the God of heaven. They understood who He was and they cursed Him. Listen to the warning that Paul wrote in Romans 2. He said, Because of your stubbornness and your unrepented heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when His righteous judgment will be revealed. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. God's wrath stands against those who stand against Him. I, uh, I love reading World War II history. And uh, I think this, this story was from uh, Stephen Ambrose, uh, Citizen Soldier. But it was a really interesting story. Uh, it was near the end of the war in Europe. And an American, a small American armored company engaged a German company and thoroughly defeated them. And um, at that point in the war, a lot of the German armies were just surrendering by the thousands, tens of thousands. And so after the battle, the Americans actually stopped and began to go around and find all the wounded Germans and started to treat their wounds. And they found the uh, commanding officer of this little Nazi company, this little German company. And they came up to him, and he had been shot. He was wounded. uh, And they they pulled him aside, and they said, Hey, listen, we can save you. Um, We need to get you to this hospital, but we need to hang some plasma 
Um, the plasma will keep you alive until the surgeons can, can fix your wound. And he said, that sounds great, but I have a question for you. This German officer speaking. He said, i got a question for you. Can you guarantee me that that plasma did not come from the blood of a Jew? This is a true story. And they looked at him and said, hey, uh, we, don't screen, uh, we don't screen religious preference on, uh, on blood. We don't do that. And he looked to these guys and he said, don't give it to me. I'd rather die than to even have the chance of having the blood of a Jew course through my veins. And he just laid there and he died. God's wrath stands against those who stand against him. When the end comes, when the end comes, those who receive God's wrath are so consumed with themselves, are so consumed with rejecting God and following evil that they would rather die than have the blood of Jesus Christ run through their veins. And for the sake of goodness and love and righteousness, God's wrath will fall on them. Revelations 21, Jesus says this, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give drink without cost from the spring of water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts and idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. God is, is as perfect in his mercy as he is in his wrath. He isn't safe, but he's good, and he's the king, I tell you. I want to invite the uh, worship band to come up as I just end with this last thought. Imagine uh, you hear, you're living in England about 100 years ago and you hear that three kids disappeared in some house. Right? And so you go up into this attic and you see a wardrobe and you walk through it and you find yourself in the land of Narnia. <laughs> right? It's kind of snow covered. There's these statues of, of, of people that have been turned to stone and animals that have been turned to stone. And, and uh, you're sort of lost. You've never been there. So you wander around for a while. And as you talk to uh, the different people, the different, the different woodland animals in the story, you learn about the white witch. You learn ab- about this lion king who's out there that is, uh, uh, that is good and that cares about his kingdom, but he is far from safe. And the truth is, you've been lost in the woods now for a few days with nothing to eat. But more than anything... You're thirsty. You're thirsty. Finally, after hiking around, you, you hear the sound of rushing water in a stream. And you push through some, some brush and you see it. And it's beautiful. Br- the sun is hitting it. It's as bright as glass. And so you approach it. In fact, when you see it, it makes you ten times thirstier th- than you thought you were. So you run to it, and just before you get to it, you stop cold. Because just on your side of the stream lay a huge, huge lion. Just for a moment, your eyes lock, and he looks straight into yours. In fact, the look he gave you was one as if he knew you quite well and wasn't really surprised to see you. 
now you're thinking, okay, <laughs> if I run, he'll eat me. If I try to drink the water, he'll eat me. But I'm so thirsty. I'm so thirsty. And as you're debating this in your head, you hear him speak. If you're thirsty, you may drink. You stand there frozen. And he asks, are you not thirsty? Given that the lion can speak, you decide to have a little Q&A time with him. And you say, uh, would you mind leaving while I take a drink? And he just growls at you. Sorry, that's a bad growl, but yeah. You ask another question. You, will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come? No. Do you eat people? I have swallowed up girls and boys, men and women, kings and emperors, cities and nations. <laughs> Thanks. I better not come. Then you'll die of thirst. Well, I guess I'll just go and I'll look for another stream. There is no other stream. It never occurs to you not to, uh, to believe the lion. It, it, no one has ever looked in his stern face and done that. So you make up your mind. You take a drink. It was the worst thing you ever had to do. The most terrifying thing you ever had to do. But you bent down in that stream and you took that water in your hands and you drank it. And it was the most cool, refreshing, life-giving water you've ever had. And as soon as you stand, the lion looks to you again and he says this, Come to me. Jesus said this, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Are you thirsty this morning? Have you been seeking this lion? Have you been searching for God? The most important thing that we can know about our Lord is that he's loving. That he's, that he's come to give us life. And this is what I'd like to do right now, but just with heads bowed, if we could bow our heads right now. If you're here this morning and uh, you've been standing at that stream, frozen for a long time now, not drinking of that water, not ready to put your life in the hands of the king, I want to give you an opportunity to do that this morning because he loves you. and He wants to spend eternity with you. He has a gift that he just wants you to receive. So if you're ready for that, just say this prayer quietly to yourself. Lord, I love you. I give my life into your hands. And I drink of your water. I ask you to become Lord and King of my life, Jesus. I thank you for what you did on the cross. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. 
you just said that prayer, this is what I'd like you to do within, with eyes closed and head bowed. If you just said that prayer, I want you to raise your hand. We have several people this morning. Keep your hand up. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Several people this morning. It says that when, uh, when we commit our life to Christ, when we choose to follow the King, that great line, that there's a party in heaven. Man, there's a party in heaven right now. There's a party in heaven right now. Lord, I just pray for each of these people, all nine or ten of them, Lord, that, that just gave their hearts to you. I pray that you would just bless them and hold them close to you. And, Father, I pray that they would just grow and grow and grow in their understanding of who you are. Thank you that you're sending your Holy Spirit right now to enter into their lives to make them new and to give them new life. And I pray you bless them in the name of Jesus. Amen.